Hello, and welcome to the Television Spotlight on the Comic Book Page podcast. My name is John Mayer. In this episode, we'll be having a spoiler-filled discussion about a television show that we think you'll enjoy. In this Father's Day episode, we are going to have a spoiler-filled discussion on the unification two-parter of Star Trek The Next Generation. This was episodes 7 and 8 of the fifth season. These aired beginning of November 1991. Back when sweeps were a big deal. Sweeps were a big deal. It was was quite a while ago. We were still in college at this point. It was my first year of college. It was my last year of college. Mm. I'm sure our parents were thankful it was only going to overlap by a year. Yes. Just for context, I was at a college where all of my classes were attendance mandatory. If you wanted to miss a class, you had to have a sit-down appointment with the professor in advance and give a really good reason why you were going to miss class. I only had to really talk, or I only remember talking to one of my instructors. And I say instructor versus professor. Because I was taking Latin. I was in second year of it. I, of course, picked Latin because it's a language that's not spoken, and I cannot speak a foreign language for the life of me. Some days I can barely do English. And this was not a full on professor, but, you know, I guess one of the grad students or whatever who was teaching it. And of course, he was really big on let's speak it and stuff. And of course, I think he kind of realized (laughs) I was going to struggle with that. But he was also enough younger that I was basically explaining, yeah, there's going to be this one point where. I'm not going to be here. And he's like, well, why? And I'm like, well, we're going to go tour the set of The Next Generation. And of course, young enough to think, hey, that's cool. Mm -hmm. Because again, this was in the heyday of The Next Gen. Well, it was, like we said, my freshman year of college. It's within the first six weeks I'm on campus and I have to go to each of my professors and justify missing classes to fly to California on parents' weekend to go to the sets of Star Trek The Next Generation instead of my parents coming to the college to meet my professors. Well, what had happened was there was an alumni tour for Next Gen going on for Chapel Hill University. University of of North Carolina. Sorry, University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Thank you for correcting me on that, Dad. I'd be upset if I got it wrong. Yeah. We, of course, didn't go there. I was going to the University of Texas. You were going to Austin College in Sherman, Texas. But Dad had gone to Chapel Hill, as had Michael Piller, Mm -hmm. who was then one of the powers that be at Star Trek and was kind of hosting this thing. Mm -hmm. And Mom and Dad basically said, well, we were going to fly out to visit for a weekend or whatever, but we thought you guys might enjoy this. So they invited each of us to come. Well, their attitude was, we were going to pay for two plane tickets. Mm -hmm. They were going to go visit you. They were going to come to my parents' weekend. But instead, it was kind of a, okay, the two round-trip plane tickets can either be you two or us two. Yeah. Which are you two in favor of? And I remember Dad justifying it with a, well, we've been to a parents' weekend at Austin College before for your older sister. Oh, he realized (laughs) they would never live it down if they'd had this opportunity and passed on it. Yes. Again, comic books, sci-fi, Star Trek, they know what a geek I am. 
They knew the two of us would love it. And what's priceless about this is mom really doesn't like science fiction. Oh, not at all. But dad, when he was college age, was into science fiction, and they both just love the workings of television. Well, and at the time, I was getting a radio television film degree, which is what I graduated with. Mm -hmm. You were getting a double major. Well, at that point, we only knew I was getting what they called at Austin College the communication arts degree, which is the equivalent radio, television, film, but they also make you take some speech courses and that kind of thing to kind of round it out. And yeah, I ended up double majoring because I took other courses for fun. This did actually align Mm -hmm. with our major fairly well. Oh, yeah, perfectly. And it was actually interesting for the other alums who were there to be seeing college students going through it with them because it turned out the whole reason Michael Piller invited everyone to do the tour and then go across the street afterwards for a meal was he really wanted to pitch people on the, look, kids are graduating from Chapel Hill, they're coming out to LA, they're trying to figure out how to get a start in our industry. And they need people to be giving them those first jobs, to be giving them the internships, to be giving them that chance to have a break. And they need mentors. More than anything, they need mentors. And the impassioned speech he gave at the beginning of dinner that was basically, okay, this is the price you pay for having had fun at my sets. Well, and he did a a great job with that pitch. It doesn't feel like a hard sell or anything. Mm-mm. And they did a great job walking us around the set. Mm-hmm. We got to go on not only parts of the Enterprise, not all of it, because again, they were doing some shooting, the bridge and a few other things were off limits, but we went to the trans... I know we went to the transporter room. <laughs> yes. The doors kind of stuck, so when I had to open them, I think I almost broke them. I didn't almost break them. You know what I mean? It was a little terrifying. You felt muscle man when they suddenly opened after- Yeah, they, they don't open and suddenly they fly. Yeah. And where else did we go on on the Enterprise? We went down, of course, the the corridors. The corridors. Did we go to Sick Bay or not? Not to Sick Bay. Engineering, uh, I think. Yeah, I Again, think so. Again, thirty years ago. Yeah, what I remember from the transporter room was the really, really thick layer of dust on the transporter pads, mm-hmm. and they were saying because it was a one hundred percent unionized set. There were specific people that could dust the transporter bats. Yeah. I think unions have a place. I think they're important in our history, and I think they do a lot of good. Mm -hmm. But I also think there's aspects of that that are a little ridiculous at times. Then again, it may be that you need people properly trained to not damage the set, etc. So, I don't know. Yeah. But I know we also got on to the command area of Deep Space Nine. Yeah. And we also went to the cave set, which is used in this. The pit. The pit. The other thing that was kind of one of the highlights is in part one of Unification, Picard and Data are on Romulus. They are hanging out at a little cafe area. Mm-hmm. We've been to that cafe. Yeah. Yeah. We got to walk on Romulus. We, we walked on Romulus and that cafe existed for all of maybe a week or two tops. And Picard ate there, Data ate there, Spock ate there, and 
We stood there. Yeah. Not all at the same time, of course. That would have been creepy. But Well, and, you know, the uh, intern that was giving us the tour was well prepped for giving the tour mm -hmm. in terms of he's saying, you know, you may recognize these lamps. They've been repurposed from this episode. Yeah. The pit, you may recognize it from when it was full and Tasha Yar died. And just, it was really impressive the way... He both explained how the sets get used in multiple ways. Used and reused and, as well as, and redressed very yeah, easily. The props and all these things. Well, and we'll shoot it from this angle for this. We'll shoot it from this other mm -hmm. angle so it doesn't look as obvious it's the same place. Yeah. One of the other things I remember from that tour is we were walking down one of the, the little streetways or whatever on, on Paramount's lot. There was a, I guess, a staircase going up to a second floor thing. And Jonathan Frakes popped out and yeah. said hi for a few minutes. And then one of the people we actually got to talk to ever so briefly was- Michael uh, Westmore. I was going to say Michael Westmore, the head of, of makeup. And by this point, they had completely redone Worf's look from the first season. Mm -hmm. And I think, I forget if it was me or you, one of us It asked. was you. Yeah. It's like, what about? And they're like, oh, we were hoping you wouldn't notice it, knowing full well that we would or whatever. But He got in your face about it as a joke at first. Yeah. And then he stepped back and he's like, no, seriously. And but he took the time to give a really good explanation yeah. about the fact that season one, he felt like some of the forehead ridges were casting shadows because they were too deep mm -hmm. and really took the question not just seriously but explained the evolution. And he's like, we could have done a more gradual, literal evolution of the makeup. Yeah, but that would have involved so much more work exactly. to, to time that. Exactly. And if you look at the first season, Worf was a background character. He was at that point no more important than like Miles O'Brien or the nameless other people on the bridge. Worf got literally double the duties when Tasha Yar died. Oh, yeah. When, when Tasha Yar died and he stepped into effectively that role, he then became a full-fledged member mm -hmm. of the cast. He's not even in the original promo shots of the cast. Well, and Tasha Yar is one of those characters that on paper sounded like she was going to be a much bigger part of the stories than she was. Yeah. And then she turned out to be the Hailing Frequencies Open character. Yeah. And you compare that to Nichelle Nichols, Uhura. Yeah, who and, literally was the Hailing Frequencies Open character. Yes, but it, it sadly is a world of difference. Well, because at that point with the original show, having a diverse cast, a, a Russian and a, a Scotsman and you know an actual alien kind of a thing, all these different people, you know, a woman on the bridge mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. It was it was groundbreaking, and it really showed again the the hopeful, inclusive vision that Star Trek is really known for because of that. Yeah, and what I really appreciate out of a lot of those original series cast members, Michelle Nichols being a, a prime example of that, is how much they supported NASA. Yes, and the number of people that have become scientists, engineers, mathematicians astronauts mm -hmm. because of the inspiration of Star Trek and of particular of the actors and, and people. Well, and there are fascinating specials that have been done on the, hey, have you ever looked at the shape of the three and a half inch floppy disk? 
Now let's yep. look at some of the Star Trek props. Yeah, the little plastic discs or whatever that, that Kirk was, was, you know, fiddling about with the Omen and stuff. Though, or Spock was putting in and out. And the, the, the three-inch floppy disc harkens back mm-hmm. visually to Star Trek. Obviously, mm-hmm. the technology came from a different angle. Yes. But also the concept of a tablet. Yes. You know, the cell phone is the communicator. Well, and the flip phone. The flip phone in particular. The fact that it took until, I want to say, post-2000 for somebody to do a Bluetooth communicator that would link to your cell phone, and I think there may have been one or two actual flip phones Mm -hmm. designed like a communicator, but oh my god, what a missed marketing opportunity. Here in Reunification, they did a deep fake. The hologram of Spock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wasn't thinking in terms of a deep fake, but that's exactly what it is. Yeah. they did. With this two-parter, basically Spock goes to Romulus because he thinks there's hope to get Romulus and Vulcan eventually reunified, hence the unification. And it's from a senator he's known before. A lot of this was also kind of leading into one of the movies, so kind of, you know, acting as a promotional vehicle for that. And we also get the Sela character Mm -hmm. that was Denise Crosby's kind of second role based on her character getting brought back and sent back in time in the Yesterday's Enterprise. I would love to watch the series of episodes with Denise Crosby after Tasha Yar's death. There's only a handful because yeah. if you started with Yesterday's Enterprise, where they bring back the Enterprise C, I want to say. That sounds right. And they go back, save, I guess, some Klingons, and that makes things better, or maybe it, it was was the Klingons the Romulus? Anyways, it had a historic moment because it made the Federation look good to an alien race. Yeah. But then she got captured by the Romulans, which allowed for the half-daughter, which is Sela, which plays out with all of that. Yeah. And there's about five episodes that play out of that. Well, I'll be honest. As a 17-year-old college student, I was not thinking Germany. Watching this how many years later, three yeah. decades later- I'm watching this and I'm thinking East Germany, West Germany, and the reunification of Germany. Breaking down the wall, getting it all back together, absolutely. That was just two years before this. Well, they covered a lot of ground in these two episodes because they also harkened back quite a bit to the episode that Sarek was in Mm. where he mind-melded with Picard. Mm -hmm. Because Picard's being sent to go get Spock, who's on Romulus. They think he's a defector and it's like, so he stops by Vulcan to go check on Sarak, and we get a really good scene there. Yeah. And then kind of off camera in the second part, Sarak dies. This was powerful on father-son relationships yes. and on grief. And honestly, I think I'd f- totally either forgotten or blocked out that part of the storyline. Yeah, I hadn't remembered the whole death of Sarak, and I remembered- Picard offering the mind meld to Spock. Me too. But I had not remembered Sarah had died in this two-parter. I had just, I guess, assumed it had happened between that and the previous episode he was in. I had forgotten the circumstances under which he offered the mind meld, but just the him offering the I have a part of your father if mm-hmm. the mind meld would be meaningful. I had forgotten what great scenes Picard and Data had. Picard and Data had some good ones, and they both looked great as Romulans. They did. They really did. But there was also some really good scenes with Spock and both Picard and Spock and Data. Yes. 
And this kind of data is seeking to be human. Spock was always seeking to not be human. Yeah. And kind of the grass is greener on the other side. Yeah. There was, it was a great two-parter for Spock. And that character is kind of unique out of the original cast in so much as he got some really good stuff here. He got some great stuff in the Kelvin universe. Mm -hmm. And there's just, that character is so rich with potential. Odd, I was going to say he's fascinating. I was going to go with a less obvious phrasing. <laughs> or I could pull a, a Stargate and say, indeed. Yes. But I think that's also one of, one of many reasons why the character of Spock came back in Discovery mm. and is getting used in Strange New Worlds. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's a great character. Yeah. So I enjoyed, you know, watching Star Trek at the time. This was at its, I would say, the peak of popularity probably for Next Generation. Deep Space Nine was on the air, but it hadn't stolen any of the limelight. Getting to actually go on to the sets. I remember cool. Yeah, I remember when we had arrived at Paramount for the tour and everyone was kind of gathering and they ended up dividing us into like three groups. Mm -hmm. But the first of the interns came out and stood up on a, a raised planter mm. And explained, first of all, we weren't going to get the tour that had been planned because the shooting schedule had, had to be changed up because it was a day Leonard Nimoy could be on set. Yeah. Yeah. So there were certain places we couldn't go because mm -hmm. it, was, it was a live set. They were actively yeah. shooting on some of it. Yeah. Yeah. But they had been planning to take us on the bridge and they couldn't because the bridge was where they had the huge green screen. And it was the only huge green screen. And I remember the example he gave, which fascinated me, was that they would move Khan and Ops out of the way, and that was where they shot the view screen for, or front uh, windows, basically, for shuttles, mm. as well as that green screen being the view screen for the bridge. Well, you're not going to have a lot of big open space anywhere mm -hmm. else. Mm -hmm. So it makes sense to do that. But I remember that explaining why the bridge felt so big and open in front of the captain's chair. What a difference from today, because you know on the current shows, they not only have designed the bridge differently to where I think that would be almost impossible to do, but I think they also use the green screen so much, either the green screen or the video wall technology they've got now, mm -hmm. that there's a, a dedicated area for that. Well, and I think now instead of needing kind of the, you need a wall like five feet away that is the green screen. Now they make a fake window and it is green mm -hmm. and it's replaced. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. We, don't, we don't need to look through a window to the green screen. The window is the green screen. Well, and again, on some other shows, I don't know exactly how they're doing it on Star Trek, but you're not looking necessarily at a green screen sometimes you're actually looking mm -hmm. at what we're going to see on on the finished product because they're doing what it won't what in uh, next gen days would have been post-production yeah some of that's getting moved up to pre-production to where you can almost get it all in the can well on uh ncis la some of the actors were saying they had this big like the size of a pool table I want to call it a tablet touch screen that controlled mm -hmm. things. And then you've got the wall size monitor. And they were saying where on other shows, the pool table size tablet would have been a dummy 
and nothing would have been up on the screen. On their show, it was actually live and they were really controlling what's up on the screen. And they said it's almost like memorizing dance moves where you're timing the choreography of what you're doing. I say this, I gesture, I do this yes. with the computer. I've got to imagine it's that way like on SWAT when they've got the, the room with all the monitors yeah. and stuff. Yeah, because you're timing the movements of getting this up onto the screen to this line of dialogue. Yeah, whereas back in Next Generation days, when they're doing the, the video call and whatnot, mm -hmm. shoot one side, shoot the other to a green screen. And again, they've got the one shot at the end when they're in this senatorial or office or whatever, and they've, they know it has holographic capabilities because the deep fake Spock. And they use it to essentially shrink the room enough that they can hide behind the, the walls. Yeah. And then kind of surprise the people and such. Mm -hmm. So doing all of that is just such a different game. Yeah. At that point versus this point. The other thing they announced when we arrived for the tour was it was the day that Gene Roddenberry had been taken to the hospital. Mm -hmm. I don't recall if he'd had a stroke or what. But they warned us that there was definitely tension on set among the crew, among the actors, because nobody knew how bad it was and yeah. what the health situation was. So they simply asked us, be mindful, be aware. Well, and again, it's not like that we had any real interaction with the cast and crew, other than bumping into Michael Westmore between studio stages or whatever they were, mm -hmm. and Frakes at one point. Mm -hmm. I just find myself wondering if they had hoped that it would be a day without a huge guest star and a day that was, I don't want to say just another day of filming, but more routine yeah. where we could have had some interactions with the cast. But there was I, so much going on that I it just wasn't possible. from Frakes, because he was like literally off in the distance kind of a deal. Mm -hmm. And I think he knew there was a tour going on and just wanted to kind of poke his head out, wave, make yeah. us feel we saw somebody, say hi for a minute or two, and then move on kind of a deal. Yeah. Which- They were working hard that day. They were working, and still to take the time out to do that, I thought was kind of cool. Yeah. So, ton of respect for that. Yeah. But just, again, being able to, to go on the set, to later see the episode, and it's like, oh, we saw that, we did this, I've been on there. To say we walked on Romulus- I've been on the transporter pad, you know, I've been yeah. in the transporter room. How many people can say that? Yeah. You know, I've been in whatever they were calling the command deck on Deep Space Nine. Mm -hmm. Sad that it's been long enough since I've yeah. watched it. I don't even remember what they called it. Yeah. So the two-parter here I thought was was good. I was shocked how many people in the, the guest cast were, oh, that's Stephen Root played the Klingon captain. And after we watched the first part, I pulled up IMDb because it's like I saw him in the in the opening credits. Where was he? It's like, uh, and then the second part, it's like I hear it in the voice. Yep, I'm thinking of Stephen Root from Office Space or News Radio. It doesn't help. You were expecting a comedian, and you got a Klingon captain. It doesn't help. I was expecting somebody probably ten years later in his life, a little older. Yeah, still brilliant actor. Well, and that's where I was with uh, Daniel Roebuck. Daniel Roebuck, who played one of the Romulans. Mm -hmm. I recognize him from, let's see, he played Jay Leno in one of the things about the late night wars at one point. Oh, that's funny. He was always great on Matlock. Oh, yeah. Again, talented actor. Yeah. 
Eric Avari from Stargate the Movie and recurring on the TV show SG-1 played a Klingon uh-huh. a junior something, attache or, attache or something or something like that. Yeah. And then there were, was there one or two other people in there that was familiar names? Mm-hmm. But I mean, some of these were people that would go on later to do big things or, you know, become known or recognizable and such. And it's always fun when you go back and watch something after 30 years. Yes. Where people who are nobodies at the time become somebody's afterwards. Mm-hmm. That that's always just kind of interesting to see what show... There's a, a I don't say a fantasy football aspect, but I think it'd be funny to find a way to mine IMDb's information of who's on what to say, okay, how many people from this show at this point in time either had done a bunch of guest starring stuff earlier and every they all just kind of coalesced or whatever, mm-hmm. or went on to go do things afterwards. Yeah. Because if you look at a couple of, of shows, now obviously the longer running ones have better odds on this. But you look at like Happy Days and how many of the people there wound up being directors. Mm-hmm. There's a surprising number of Star Trek actors that would do a few episodes directing and then move on and do a lot afterwards. Frakes is a good example of that. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, there's some obvious shows that ran forever and were guest star heavy, like Love Boat. Yes. Where if you were anybody <laughs> working in television in, in that era, you, you were eventually on that show. Six Degrees of Love Boat. Something like that. Yeah. 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 So. There is a third part to Unification. It was in Discovery, and it took place when they hopped into the far future, and they'd actually unified. Yeah. And then you've got Michael Burnham, who was able to say, but he's really what he thought and wanted. Well, and season one of Picard, I feel, ties into this. Yes. Well, the whole what happens with, with Romulus, this, I'm trying to think when the Kittimer Conference happened, if it was before or after this, because I think it was the movie that this was kind of promoting subtly, was where all of that happened. And then you've got the reunification stuff. You then have the Kelvin timeline with everything that's going on with, with the Romulan people there, which kicks off into Picard. Mm-hmm. There are a couple of things they have is just major story threads throughout the, the timeline. Yeah, And I like it when they do that. I like it when there are those kinds of callbacks in the sense that the universe is growing and evolving. Yeah. And particularly when they can do it in a hopeful way. You know, here it's reunification isn't going to happen overnight. It may take generations. And it takes the people. And it takes the people. But if you start with the young people and get them set up with a, a new mindset, a new way of thinking, and don't carry the old grudges and habits mm-hmm. forward, yeah, that's how you make progress generation over generation. Now, it sucks to have to wait that long, mm-hmm. but we've seen that in the real world where the status quo of society when Star Trek originally aired precluded certain things and made other things scandalous almost. Yeah. To where we are now, it's, it's again, night and day difference and then project that forward another generation or two or another you know century or two. Mm-hmm. Ton of possibilities. I'm just waiting for technology to get to the point and it's 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 moving in these directions where eventually these chat gpt like ais would be able to study and get trained up on the star trek lore of television movie novels comics etc generate new and good scripts mm-hmm. now they're at the point where they may be able to generate scripts mm-hmm. can they generate new don't know good yeah probably not but we'll get there yeah 
But you look at deep fake technology, you look at things like stable diffusion and text to image type stuff, which is leading to text to video type stuff. There's already AI technology that can duplicate voices. Mm -hmm. They're at some point, possibly within our lifetime, probably within our lifetime. No, granted, the far end of it, maybe, where we could be getting new episodes of the original series, Next Generation, etc. Yeah. In canon, feeling and looking and acting like these characters. Which is kind of awesome. If they do it well and respectfully, absolutely. Yeah. You know, and to be able to get a version of, say, this two-parter, where the universe doesn't feel so narrow, but we actually get back to the widescreen and stuff. <laughs> oh, the letterboxing was priceless. I tell you, the other thing I was thinking while we were watching this two-parter, and this is just my crazy mind at work, I would love to know how much time was spent in each of the different Star Trek shows with the shot of the ship in space. Oh, yeah. Because I think with Next Gen as an example, you could tell somebody, yeah, I've, I've harvested footage from the thing. I've, of course, had to redo the dialogue to get the story I want in there and have it be nothing but shots of the Enterprise flying back and forth or what have you. It was a powerful establishing shot. It was an amazing establishing shot. You almost always had it right when you came back from commercial. Yeah. It's, oh yeah, that's where we are. And it's also something that's a sign of the times of how often do we not get that in either modern Trek or just modern shows in general, mm -hmm. where they don't reset the scene. Well, by the time of Next Gen, at least we'd moved forward from, meanwhile, back at the ranch. I don't know. I always thought, meanwhile, at the Hall of Justice was a great tagline, but that's just me. <laughs> so, so yeah, this, this episode, these, this two-parter, holds a special place in my heart because, again, yeah. we were on the set and stuff, did that because Dad both went to the right school it had the right thing. He also thought, as a good father, to invite us to this. I think Dad was proud of himself for opening his alumni mail in a timely fashion. Oh, yeah. He never would have lived it down if he'd... Oh, yeah. It was going to happen last month, but I didn't know. You know, the other thing that was there was uh, one of his college buddies. Yes. Chuck Howerton. Chuck Howerton. And he uh -huh. did... Cartoon voices? He's done anime voices. He's been the president of the United States in at least one movie. Mm -hmm. um, he was some kind of like farmer or rancher in episode Justified. He's got so many credits. Yeah, he was he was a lot of fun to talk with. He really was, yeah. So that that was that was fun. Well, and yeah, he was a very good friend of dad's back in their college days. Life had taken them in different directions, mm -hmm. and they hadn't seen each other in over two decades. Yeah. They ended up sitting next to each other at the restaurant and then kind of looking at each other and going, oh, wait, <laughs> mm -hmm. how'd that happen? And then just having a great chat, like those two decades hadn't even passed. Yeah, yeah. And it turned out that Chuck's father had been a very high-ranking naval officer. I want to say an admiral. Mm -hmm. I could be wrong. But he knew dad was in ROTC. So every time he thought dad was getting just a little worried about going into the Navy, he'd give him another pep talk about <laughs> how great it had been growing up with a dad in the Navy, how much his dad had enjoyed being in the Navy. And he said the flip side was he wasn't positive what he was going to do coming out of college. And he never would have thought of doing voices, anime voices, anything yeah. like that. But dad was the station manager for Wonk, 
uh, WUNC, the radio station on campus. And dad had a series of radio shows called Strange Legends of the South Mm -hmm. that he was doing. And it was basically roping all his friends in to helping him out with voices. And he asked Chuck to do it. And Chuck came pretty close to saying, I'm kind of the shy guy, (laughs) not really the guy to- Audio is a great place for that, though. Yeah. Yeah. And dad talked him into it. And he said, just opened up this world of possibilities to him. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it was really cool. Yeah, because, I mean, unlike today, where like literally anybody and their dog can do a podcast. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, proof of that minus the dog. Back in those days, if you wanted to do that kind of a thing, it's, are you on the student radio? Can you get a job doing that? Yeah. It was was nowhere near as kind of democratized as it is now. Well, and that series, uh, Strange Legends of the South, it not just my opinion, it was good enough that National Public Radio mm-hmm. picked it up, and the scripts are still in the university library. And when I reached out to the university for a copy and told them that I'd listened to Dad's reel-to-reels of it, you know, back in the 80s, they told me if I ever find the reel-to-reels, they'd be interested in having copies of the audio to go with the scripts. Well, I mean, how many college radio stations, TV stations, etc., would love to recapture some of the school history mm-hmm. that some of the students may still have or their descendants may have and such? Yeah. And I think we're lucky to be living in a time where watching a 30-plus-year-old TV show, I've got the DVDs, it's easy to do. Not all shows are that way. I mean, yeah. you look at Doctor Who and the lost episodes. Yeah. You know? Well, and the flip side is, I think back in the 80s, I think I kind of took for granted that dad would pull out the reel-to-reel player and play for me Strange Legends of the South. Yeah. And I mean, it really dates the story, not just that it was a reel-to-reel player, but he had one that had a built-in cassette deck so that he could convert his reel-to-reels to the more modern Which cassette tapes. Which I'm sure was zero accident. I'm sure he bought that oh. specifically for oh, that yeah, reason. Oh, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And he stopped pulling out that reel-to-reel player when the cassette deck portion broke. Yeah. Because it was kind of a, if I can't be converting them. What's the point? Yeah. Yeah. Well, because at that point, you almost risk the reel-to-reel. Yeah. Because again, it's, it's a, a physical media that can get damaged. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that was a, a, a fun way to spend a, uh, a college weekend. It was amazing. Fly out, go do that, fly back. Well, and part of Paramount is physically on what used to be Desilu. Yes. Yeah, the historic nature of that area and, and those sound stages and such. Because again, Desilu is what gave us Star Trek. Mm-hmm. So beyond just the, the Isle of Lucy show and some other stuff like that, it was... Mm-hmm. Definitely, I think, pivotal in uh, television history. Mm-hmm. But yeah, being able to walk around just the Paramount lot, the Star Trek stuff in particular, getting to talk with, with Michael Pillar and stuff. Yeah. He later formed a production company with his son. Sean Pillar. Sean Pillar, who once Michael passed away, still continued to do stuff. That production company did the Dead Zone TV series, Haven, Private Eyes. Mm-hmm. I want to say, did they do the Transporter show? I'm not sure. They may or may not have. I don't know. But they've done quite a few things that I've enjoyed. Yeah. So, it uh, again, that's one where the son needed to f- get a foothold into the business, mm-hmm. but once he did, did good. Yeah. So, there's a lot to be said for that. So, this was a 
indulgent episode, but I like the two-parter on uh, unification. Again, we've got a personal connection to it. I thought it would be a fun Father's Day episode because it connects us to our father, Spock to his father, you know, etc. Sean Pillar to Michael Pillar. Yeah. The loss of Michael Pillar was very sad for the Star Trek universe and really creativity. He did some great stuff. Well, and he passed away reasonably young. Yeah. He could have given us another good couple of decades of material. Mm -hmm. And I'd I'd be curious how Star Trek would have evolved under more of, of his influence than maybe some of what we got after that. That was definitely a turning point for Star Trek. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think that's one of the things that led to the more war aspect of Deep Space Nine. Mm-hmm. They went away from Next Gen being a boldly going out there mm-hmm. to Deep Space Nine of sitting around, it'll come to us, to Voyager of, let's fly home. Yeah. And that's just a bizarre kind of round tripping when the whole thing is go out and explore. Yeah. But at least they're getting back to that now with Strange New Worlds. Yeah. So if you're looking for classic Trek of this ilk, if you haven't checked out Strange New Worlds, I do recommend it. I do want to say this held up really well. I mean, yes, it's dated in terms of the art looks like it's from the 90s and that kind of stuff. Well, but really, the this, budget looks like it's from the 90s. Yes, but really, budget. the story held up well. Yes. And stuff like that. It It was a really enjoyable watch. It was a fun watch. It doesn't feel like the story dated, but it is hard not to compare it to the visual crispness of... 4K high def, strange mm-hmm. new world, the the high tech production values it's got and stuff. Oh, agreed. But I watched with our mother a movie from like the 60s, I think it was, mm-hmm. maybe even the 50s recently. And we were 20 minutes in. And I'm like, does this have a plot? Does this have a story? When are we starting? Well, one of the things I was going to mention when we were talking about Yarn stuff, or, or Worf actually in the first season and stuff. One of the things I think a lot of people forget about Next Generation is that first half of that first season. It was shot on film. Mm, mm-hmm. It was done with cinematic lighting. Mm-hmm. There was harsh light coming in from space, casting shadows, and mm-hmm. it was very, again, cinematic versus television-y. Yeah. And I, neither is good or bad, but they're very different styles mm-hmm. of how you light it, how it looks, etc. And I think once you shift from one to the other, and I don't think you could have continued doing televised Trek the way they had started it. Yeah. So I, I think that was an interesting change. And I think it would also make many of those earlier episodes feel a lot more dated because it's not in kind of what we're accustomed to visually. Well, it's funny because the artwork in Picard's office looked like what you would buy from Lightspeed. And that's, yeah. that's not a bad statement. But it's just a, it didn't pop off the screen like modern TV quality art, if that makes sense. Well, but also when they were filming this, they were doing it for standard definition. Yes. So you're not going to do what they do in a lot of Trek shows now, where they've got the equivalent of the Eagle Moss little miniatures of all the ships and stuff. And you can, even from across the room, get a fairly clear sense of of what they are. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, because you just didn't have the resolution. Yeah. The other thing we saw on the tour in one of the hallways, they showed us the uh, map on the wall of the ship. Of the Enterprise. 
and all the Easter eggs that uh, Michael Okuda kind of put in it. Yeah, there's one bathroom on the whole ship. There's a rubber duck in the thing. Yes, that was the other one that came to mind. Yeah. There is a YouTube channel, I want to say half screen, that does in-depth looks at various Star Wars and Star Trek ships. And they've done a few on the Enterprise D deck by deck. And they've used the official blueprints as guides. They've, I don't know if they had this the 3D renders done or somebody else had just done them and they've leveraged them. But you've got this 3D render and stuff like this. And it's funny, particularly when they go through like the shuttle bays, which look cavernous there compared to what I usually see on the show. It's like, but those are the official blueprints. Yeah. Kind of funny. Yeah. But again, the fact that that could be done by a hobbyist on a YouTube channel just yeah. means what they can do when they really set their mind to it. And I'm I'm really looking forward to not only second season of Strange New Worlds, but there's talk of Babylon 5 coming back. Yes. And while it was concurrent with Deep Space Nine, and again, around this time period, it was also doing a lot with virtual sets and things of that sort, when the technology just was way more limited than it is now. Mm-hmm. Well, isn't that why it hasn't come out on at least Blu-ray? Part of why it hasn't come out is they, because of what seemed like a series of miscommunications or somebody just getting stubborn, didn't spend a few thousand dollars on production to do a widescreen thing which would have facilitated it later getting done in Blu-ray and 4K and all of that. Yeah. So a lot of times, if you can catch it, I forget if it's on Amazon Prime or wherever, you get some really nice shots because they've remastered like the footage of the people. Oh, got it. But then when you get to the ship or the visual faked out interiors of, of the inside of the ship and stuff, it feels dated. Yeah. But that's something that sooner or later, either with AI or just a bunch of geeks with, with the incentive to do it, somebody's going to wind up getting a high-res version of that done. because. There are people who've taken things like this era of Star Trek mm. and done their own remastering of it into high def in 4K. Well, I was telling you uh, very early in one of the two episodes that I thought one of the great things they could do for an anniversary celebration is just to redo the opening credits with modern effects. Yeah, yeah. Modern fonts, modern visuals, it, it would pop off the screen. It would. It would. And at some point, again, there are hobbyists that have remastered just from what they can get off the DVDs and Blu-rays, yeah. you know, which are not remastered to the 4K and stuff, but they've upscaled it. They've, they've done some technical wizardry on it. Imagine if you had, you know, actual full-blown professionals doing this. Yeah. So it'd be nice because it's great stuff and it'd be great if it had the, the visual icing on the cake that we're used to these days. Mm-hmm. But even so, it was visually, it felt a little dated here and there. Story still held up. It's still classic track. Mm-hmm. Still a lot of fun. Yeah. Anything else? I think that does it. You sure? Maybe. Okay. We'll call it an episode then. The show notes and form for this podcast can be found at www.comicbookpage.com under the podcast and forum sections of the website. Please email us at theguys at comicbookpage.com and let us know what you think of what was discussed in this episode. Thanks for listening. <laughs>